Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. And on the program today, we have Alan Barnhart. Alan came to Christ in a young life camp in the wonderful, beautiful, colorful state of Colorado. He and Catherine have six kids, ages 35 and down, three daughters-in-law, one son-in-law, and seven grandkids. That's a lot of moving parts, Alan. (laughs) (laughs) It's a full full plate. (laughs) He has a boring resume. That's what he says. He worked for the same company since he was 10 years old and in the same position since 1986. Barnhart Crane and Rigging Company, a heavy lifting and heavy transport company based in the great state of Tennessee and Memphis. Go Vols. Go Vols, you bet. (laughs) The most weird orange color on the planet, but go Vols. (laughs) 40 cities, he has offices, and God grew his company, average of 18% for over 36 years. Alan provides services to the heavy industry, construction, focusing on power plants. We want to talk about this, wind, nuclear, fossil fuels, and the petrochemical industry. Now, this is where Alan's Vita resume bio becomes interesting because Alan was a little bit afraid of his affluence. And so he made a decision to cap his lifestyle. His passion for missions took over and has taken him to 60 countries. The company profits are invested in missions through the Grove Group. We'll talk about that. Kingdom Company Group, also team members and spouses. About 70 folks work in six teams to develop kingdom investments and portfolios and we'll talk about this but you're largely involved with national christian foundation is that correct we are yes they've been a great great help to us great partner alan seeks to affect other companies through involvement in kingdom companies and a group called c12 he is a trustee in the kingdom trust and serves as their counsel he is active in local c12 groups serves on their board he attends first ev free church in Memphis, and he's a backpacker, and you just came off the Appalachian Trail. Is that right? Yes, 2022, I did the trail. It's uh, 2,200 miles. It was quite an adventure. How long did it take you? It was about four months of hiking. I did it over about a seven-month period. I had to come off for some business things, but about four months on the trail. Now, did you carry supplies and or caches? How did you do it? I know there's lots of ways to do it. Yeah, no, I mean, I carried everything on my back, but then food, you have to you know, get your fuel every probably four, five, six days okay. and charge up your devices and then get back on the trail. So do they have like cash places where the food is stored or do you actually just go into a town? You go into a town. Yeah. You can usually hitchhike into a town or sometimes you walk through a town and occasionally you run into what they call trail angels, which are people that come out to the trail and will cook you burgers and, you know, they'll meet you at a crossroads and it's such a joy. And I probably had 50 experiences of trail wow. angels providing meals, which was great. My wife's a realtor and she had a dear, dear friend who went to do it and she died and it took them months to find her. And it was one of those, apparently that happens sometimes Wow. on that experience. But anyway, on that sad note, um, so, okay, before we get into other things, three highlights that you learned, why you did it, what'd you learn and what were your takeaways from the Appalachian One of the reasons I went was to try to get time learning to listen to God. And I think that was a highlight of time every day, able to be by myself. 75% of the time I was walking by myself in the woods. The other thing is I determined to not walk away from a conversation. Hmm. And you can go deep pretty quickly with conversations on the trail. When you're at Walmart, you don't meet somebody and say, hey, what brings you to Walmart? And where are you from? And what do you do? But on the trail, that's a natural thing to do. 
And I had a trail name. My trail name was Wilberforce. And 99% of the people I met had never heard of William Wilberforce. Amazing. So I just would say to them, when they'd say, Wilberforce, what's that? And I'd say, well, um, he was the number two social reformer of all time. Would you like to hear his story? And it's a great story of a guy yes. whose life was changed by God, and then he changed the world and ended slavery in the British Empire. And, but so few, including Brits, so few had ever heard of Wilberforce. Wow. I was sort of baiting them with the question of, by saying he was the number two social reformer of all time. Who's number which would, one, yeah. Who, yeah. Who's number one? You would be amazed how few people picked up on that and asked me, I mean, maybe four or five people out of 300 ever asked, who's number one? And uh and uh, and I could say, you know, this this other guy, he he changed everything for children, for women, for religion, for leadership. He changed everything. His name was Jesus. Have you may have heard it. of him? One of the things we talk about in context often is just the lack of historical understanding. You know, where how we got where we are, even as a country. Well, let's start. I want to hear about your young life experience in high school. I grew up in a moral family. We went to a little Methodist church. Didn't understand the gospel. Guys came out to our high school with Young Life and do what they do, which is make the gospel clear and appealing. And I would always have said I was a Christian until the day before I accepted Christ. When I heard about sin and the consequences of sin, I realized I had a problem and I needed a Savior. And then fortunately, the next day they talked about the cross and what Jesus had done. And I was ready to hear it. And, um, and embraced it. This was after my sophomore year in high school, embraced my faith and spent the next year sliding into some things I shouldn't have been, but went back the following year and worked at this camp, washing dishes for a month around a bunch of other believers and really changed my life. And I haven't looked back since. What year was that, Alan? I went the first time in in 1977. And then in 1978, I went back for the month. So you come to Christ. When do you and Catherine meet? We met in college. I was a senior when she was a freshman at the University of Tennessee, met in an intervarsity Bible study, and she was dating another guy, and I was dating some. So we were just buddies for a year, and she was like my little sister, and we did all kinds of stuff, really enjoyed each other. No romance, no thought of romance, and which I think is a great way to start a relationship. And the complexities of romance weren't part of it at all. And so just really enjoyed getting to know who she was. And and then a year and a half later, both of our situations had changed. And we decided this was something worth looking into. And you got married what year? 80? 85. 85. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the, the business. Is this a family business or did you start working there as a kid and took over? Yeah, no. So my parent, my mom and dad started the business in 1969 with a pickup truck and a ladder and a welding machine. I and love it. for the first 17 years, my mom wrote every paycheck and the international corporate headquarters was two bedrooms of our home. And <laughs> my NBA experience was going into my dad's office at night and he's sitting in his tidy whities working and I'm talking, we're talking about business. And he was an engineer and he was an innovator, but he wanted to keep his company very small. And mm-hmm. so we had eight or 10 employees. We would get a big job and we may add people and then shrink back down. It was just a great way to grow up though. My brother and I grew up running cranes and driving trucks and climbing steel and being iron workers. And, you know, so every summer in high school and college, we worked in the business Mm -hmm. and which was great fun and, uh, you know, hard physical work, a bunch, bunch of blue collar guys, but I learned a heck of a lot and it was a great experience. So when do you actually take over the company, Alan? I got out of college in 83 and spent the next couple of years reading through the Bible because 
I thought about going to seminary. Some people advised me to do that. I had grown a lot in my faith in college. People saying, you know, go on Young Life staff, do something significant. <laughs> and as I prayed about it, I said, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go, do whatever you want me to do. That's where I was at that point in my life. Hope, hopefully I still am. But I came to the conclusion that all of us are in full-time ministry and you don't have to get your paycheck from a charity or a church to be in full-time ministry. And that God had gifted me more in the area of business and engineering than he had of preaching or counseling. Mm -hmm. And so I decided my full-time ministry was going to be in this. And so I decided I'd read through the Bible to see what it had to say about business and money. And man, it said a lot, thousands of verses. And reading through those while I'm working in the family business, working for my parents, I started getting a fear as I read through these verses. First, the concept of stewardship came real to me that God owns everything. And I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I've got no rights. I've got responsibilities as a steward. I have no rights as an owner to anything, including my life. And the second thing, though, was fear that business success could be detrimental to my life. There were so many warnings. Jesus warned more about money, 10 times more than anything else. And all the parables, I mean, the guy with the bigger barns, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. he pulled off what he wanted to, and yet God called him a fool, and you know he missed it. Verses in First Timothy that were, you know, people plunge themselves in ruin and destruction if they seek to get rich, and on and on and on. Don't store up treasure for yourself on earth. You can't serve God and money. There's all these verses, and I came away from that thinking, man, this is dangerous. Mm. I need to be really careful. Very thankful that God gave us those verses during that 1984 and 1985, mm. because in 1986, my parents came to us and said, we've decided that we're going to leave the company and get on a sailboat and sail around the world. Whoa. And they did it. Just the two of them. Off they went for most of the next seven years. They were gone sailing around the world. Get out. And they said, my wife and I had thought about doing a stint in missions. We were thinking about going and kind of becoming missionaries in an Arab country. And, you know, and we thought maybe it'd be a short-term thing, but parents said, you know, if you want to go do that, then we'll sell the business. But if you want to stay, you guys can start your own company. And so my brother and I, in 1986, started a new company, but we did so after a lot of conversation around those scriptures and around those warnings to say, let's, this is dangerous. Let's be intentional. And so before we started as partners, we committed to the concept of stewardship. This is God's business. Technically, we're each going to own half the company, but it, everything belongs to God. And the second was a safeguard against the dangers of wealth by saying, we're going to put a cap on our lifestyle. And if God chooses to prosper the business, we're not going to see that as an opportunity to increase our lifestyle. Instead, we're going to see it as an opportunity to use that money for kingdom purposes. Mm. And so we agreed to a specific salary and a concept of how we were going to increase that salary as we had kids and stuff. But we had a commitment there. I got to tell you, it was so helpful because we've been partners now for 37 years and we've never argued about money. Wow. My wife and I have been married 38 years. We never argue about money. And I know there's so many families that get ripped apart. Our company's had a lot of success, way beyond what we ever dreamed. And when we set this thing up in 86, it was a mom and pop business. Mom and pop were leaving. We were young kids. I was 25. We didn't know if we'd even survive the first year. But just in case we put these things in place, and man, are we thankful that God gave us those, mm -hmm. those scriptures at that time. I mean, I know a lot of families that have family turmoil in businesses, and it's usually not because of a lack of money. It's because of too much money and how to divide that up. And so anyway, we're very thankful that we put those things in place and 
see it as sort of a turning point in our life and, and see it as a good principle to do, to do this whole thing around money on purpose and don't do what comes naturally. Put some stakes in the ground and get some accountability for those stakes. And it really worked for us. I remember my first uh, introduction to generous giving with Patrick Johnson and um, Paul Johnson, who was a board member at Moody when I was at the Moody Bible Institute, was a delightful man. And he was one of these guys they'd bring in to speak as a very successful business person and talk about giving money away. And we went through Crown and, of course, Financial Peace University, and we did some of the generous giving events. And uh, Cindy and I did a very similar thing, and we said we're going to increase our standard of giving hmm. before our standard of living. And so whenever we got money that we didn't anticipate, we would stop and say, okay, where are we going to give it? We wanted to take care of our kids and, God willing, grandkids. Uh, on a pastor's salary, you're not <laughs> you're not looking to get rich. You know, it's not like as Hendricks would say, if you're going into ministry to make money and to get your head examined, you know. But um, <laughs> one one of the things that, and well, I want to get to NCF and generous giving a little bit. But talk to me, Alan, about the Western Christian mindset. And I I, I talk to our church frequently about Western Christianity is really off because it's I me my, it's bigger, better, newer, more. It's the acquisition of wealth, and I have no problem with wealth. It's how you handle it and what you do with it, and is it yours or do you steward it? We often say always steward, never owner. I feel like I'm a squirt gun you know, with hell talking about, I mean, my Christianity is not biblical Christianity. Western Christianity is not Christianity, and we get distracted by many good things, politics, policy, you know, wealth, income, insurance, all these things that crowd us out. So help me understand your take on how we speak to Western Christianity without just you know throwing water on everybody, but trying to yeah. encourage them. It's not just about I, me, my. No, no. And I think not enough pastors are speaking about it. I so appreciate that you are. Jesus talked about it all the time. If pastors preached about it in proportion to how Jesus spoke of it, Every couple of weeks, there'd be a significant point being made about the dangers of money. Jesus warned about it all the time. So it was a big deal 2,000 years ago. Never mind current affluent society. This whole concept of money was a trap, a danger, a warning 2,000 years ago. Given our current status of affluence, well, you can see the results of it. And I think it is, there's this American dream lie that says stuff will make you happy. You deserve it. You're, it's yours. You earned it. I love the verse in Deuteronomy that says, "When you start to prosper, don't forget because yeah. don't forget that it's God that gave you the yep. tools to create anything. It's not you, man. It yeah. all comes back to God. It all belongs to God. And it's not like that is a harsh, hard, disciplined thing. I mean, God doesn't want our money." He wants us. He doesn't need it for sure. <laughs> because he wants us, he wants all of us, he wants us to hold our money with an open hand. And if we don't, there's somehow money creates a separation between us and God. You can't serve God and money. So I think that our society has lost that warning, doesn't get warned enough about it, and they do what comes naturally, which is more, more, more. We have a wildly affluent society. You know, poor people today live better than 
Rockefeller left. You know, yeah, what, what's it, the what's the current number? Do you know on on impoverished? It, it, for one one point, it was like thirty seven thousand dollars a year. You were impoverished. It's something like that. Yeah, it's. it's, like, it's are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, most poor people. You know, in the U.S. now around the world, there are people living oh, legitimately on, on a couple bucks a day. Yes, and yes. Uh, the other day, I did some research on a person living at half of the poverty level in the U.S was in the top 15% of the world or something like that. It was some crazy statistic. So I think this is a universal problem. Jesus warned about it so much. This is not something that affects just a couple of major donors. I also don't think that God is impressed with the commas and the zeros yeah. of giving. Yeah. I mean, the number one giving story of all time, the Hall of Fame giving story. Yep. Yeah, what is my couple of lepers? Not some, uh-huh. not some major donor, you know. Yeah. And so people are impressed with big numbers. God's not, but I do think that followers of Jesus are missing out on some tremendous opportunities. They're not getting away with anything. It's hurting them. It's damaging. It's scary. Those warnings that Jesus gave are real, and pe- the results of it are seen everywhere. You know, I'd say greed is one of the choice tools of our enemy, mm. and generosity breaks the power of greed. And if there's no other reason, if it's, if you want to be just totally self-serving, be generous because <laughs> it's going to, it's going to keep you from being eaten up by greed and greed is a, a corrosive, damaging uh, yeah. thing. Uh, Cindy and I worked with married couples for many, many years and, and we would like you and Catherine, I don't think Cindy and I argued about money eight, 10 times in our almost 43 years. And it's been interesting because a lot of couples do and We've often commented, I'm so glad I married a person that had an open hand. Sometimes she wants to give way more than I think she should. And sometimes I, she goes, why do you want to give them? I go, well, you gave to such and such. And we, we laugh about it now. But it's, you know, it's to, to be a steward of this material that God lets us hold. And we give it to somebody and bless them in a way that is, you know, consequentially, exponentially far more effective than, you know, buying another car and, and I love cars. I'm, I would have a new car every year. I mean, I, I just love cars and trucks and it's a problem, but do you know Haddon Robinson? I know the name. I don't know him personally. Uh, he's yeah. with the Lord, but ha- hadn't preached a series of messages and you brought up the widows in the barn. So it, it, my mind ran over there. He did a incredible exposition. I bet you can find it on both these stories and he contextualized them. One of the barns is set in Dallas, and we lived in Dallas at the time, and it's the most chilling sermon <laughs> because the angel of death knocks on the door at midnight, and this guy's got blueprints of his plants that he's expanding, and he looks up and he goes, oh, it's midnight, and who's at the door? And this guy comes in, and he, you know, the exchange he has is so chilling because <laughs> the guy says, it, well, it's time, and we have to go, and he goes, what do you mean? What, we have to go. I don't understand. And he shows this angel of death, these blueprints. Look what I'm doing. And the angel's listening. And that's really interesting. He goes, but we really need to go. And so the guy gets into a fictitious barter with the angel of death and says, look, I'll give you half of everything. And he goes, really? You give me half of this? Well, we'll talk. And and he, he just keeps expanding it. And then he does this incredibly dramatic thing. And he says, well, it's time to go. And then when he hits zero, he just pauses for about 20 seconds. And then he says, a man's life does not consist of his possessions. And boy, and then one on the widow is similar and that he says, you know, 
to the disciples, come over here. You got to see this one. Check it out. You got to yeah. see this one. Pay attention. On the Barnes thing, yeah. he recapped it by saying, this is how it is with anyone yes. who stores up things for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh. That's scary stuff, man. That is uh, that we might spend a lot of energy trying to do something that is going to have zero eternal value or maybe a negative eternal value. Williamson County, where we live, is is a 1% county. It's probably the wealthiest county in the state of Tennessee. Um, we lived in D.C. and Northern Virginia, and Nova was probably the wealthiest county in the state of Virginia. And, of course, Chicago, we lived there for a few years and on and on. People don't see themselves that way, Alan. I often tell our church, you only compare yourself to someone who has more. You never compare yeah. yourself to someone who has less. And that's part of the comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. We can't comprehend. Look, this is the cap. You, you came to a cap. Um, help out the person that says, okay, Alan, I'm kind of tracking, but how do I start? How do I get there? The way to start is to say I'm entitled to nothing. Mm. One of the illustrations I use is the army cook. And I think we would all agree that the army cook shouldn't eat better than the rest of the troops. <laughs> you know, he shouldn't keep the good food back in the kitchen and send out the rice and beans to the troops. Now he has some ability to do that on a short-term basis, but it would be a dereliction of his duties to do so. Those of us who are in a position in the body of Christ to generate a bunch of income, our education, where we're born, our family, our whatever opportunities have come along that have put us in a spot to generate a lot of money that give us any rights to consume it any more than the army cook has the rights to consume that he is preparing and that we need to be distributing to the body of Christ. I think for some people providing all kinds of roles within the body, but I think people that have an ability to produce income should see that as this is, I get to be, I get to be part of the body by deploying my resources for kingdom purposes. I don't have any right to consume it, but, I, but I want to deploy it and I want to deploy it well. And so I think that should be the mindset rather than how much can I get away with keeping? Yeah. You know, what, what's the number? Give me the number so I can argue that number up a little bit so I can increase my lifestyle. I'd say it's much more fulfilling to be a giver, a kingdom investor than it is to be a consumer. And so, you know, consume what you need. I differentiate from consumer and consumerism. You know, because we do consume, we consume f fuel and, and food and electricity and, you know, we got to buy clothes at some point, but consumerism is the problem is that, you know, I bought two pair of blue jeans the other day that I don't need. Now they were only $40 each, but I'm going, I got so many blue jeans in my closet. Well, they were on sale. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't afford not to. <laughs> and my dad said, I said, dad's on sale. He goes, yeah, think how much money you save if you don't spend it. But you know, that didn't <laughs> rub off entirely. <clears throat> but, but again, and, and then I want to go to a very different angle of this, this idea of universal income and the entitlement yeah. that we're seeing coming up from our younger men and women. This terrifies Ouch. me, Alan. It is such a, a bad idea. Not, not because people don't deserve it. They don't deserve to have that done to them. The other day, my mom was up in arms about reparations and somebody was talking about reparations on, and they're Fox news listeners. And, and I said, mom, I actually think we owe reparations. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I said, we have 
created an entitlement system that has severely damaged a lot of cultures and we did it to them and we need to find a way to make that right. You don't make it right by giving them more money. (laughs) It's not, that was the harm that we did. And so, you know, so much of what was going on during the, during the COVID I thought was just going to cause damage to people. Um, I wasn't as worried about the, the fact that it's going to run up our national debt, which is not a small issue, but it was more the reinforcing getting something for nothing. Well, and which, you, which, you know, which hurts people's soul. People don't want to work. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I was at Lowe's yesterday picking up something, and there was a woman my age who obviously was retired and went to work at Lowe's. And I said, I see a lot of older men and women working here. And she said, Well, they're always hiring. Years ago, you know, when one of my my son, for example, he couldn't find a job. They, all the part-time jobs were gone, and now people don't want to work. And I, I was asking uh, Dave Ramsey the other day, I said, Dave, okay, they're on their couch. How long can they live on mom and dad's couch? How many couches are there in America that people don't go to work? And he said, more than we can count. And I was like, well, I understand the idea, but what happened to personal dignity? What happened to responsibility? What contribution to my family, my friends to get a job? I mean, are you seeing this in Memphis and you're? Yeah. And I mean, I think it's been a forever a problem and I think okay. it's gotten worse. And I think, um, I would say people should be very careful when they think about inheritance for their children. Yes. I'd say more often than not, we'll do more harm than good by providing inheritance to kids. Those kids for whom it will not provide harm they'd be fine either way. They'd be fine without the money and they'd be fine with it. But a whole bunch will be demotivated. And, you know, so it's, I think money's a dangerous thing that we need to be careful about. I I think we especially don't want to subject our kids. That's one we have more control over, but for them to be set for life to me is a real damaging thing to be. Years ago, I read Ron Blue's book on inheritance and I, I was you know, fortunate to call Ron a friend. And one of the things he said was with some of the very wealthy people he worked with, they came up with a number and he said, interestingly, it was a million. And he said, you never give a child more than a million dollars and you need to meet it out in a certain way because it will destroy them and the rest you give away. Now a million sounds like a Herculean amount to a lot of folks, but the point was you will do damage you know, we don't have that kind of resource, but what we've done, because all four of our children are different, is we've said a percentage they have to give away. So we give it to them, and then we said, okay, guys, here's a percentage, and you get to give it wherever you want, but you need to give some away because we want to say, look, mom and dad worked a long time. God bless us far more than we ever thought, and uh, we want you to learn how to do that too. And the other thing that we've come across, and I'm sure you're aware of, is the Cumberland Trust they aren't in every state, and there, I'm sure there are groups like it, but they're actually an independent group that you give your wealth to, and they administer it to your children. So if you have a, a troubled child, for example, who you're not sure how he or she would exploit the money, is you say, well, you know, when they're 30 or 40, they might get their act together, and so we don't want to be punish, punish them, but you do give them something, but the Cumberland Trust Board then says, okay, Joe, you're doing pretty good now. Uh, would you like a down payment for a house? Your parents left you money for that. You got a job. You got a family. You off drugs, whatever. And it's a real an interesting organization. And I think they have partnerships with NCF and other groups. But let, let me move on. I'm prattling, and I want to hear from you. Talk about the Grove. 
the Grove Group? Yeah, the the genesis there was we had a lot of money, and we we're that came in the first year. It was fifty thousand dollars, and we we're thinking, man, what do we do with this? We had a formula basically to say we we're going to give away fifty percent of our profits each year. Now we had fifty thousand dollars, and we did didn't have any idea what to do. And so we decided to, to do that as a group. And we got together with six of us, prayed and said, God, what do you want us to do with your money? And we together kind of selected a dozen ministries or so and sent the money out. The next year it was 150,000. So this was back in the, in the late eighties. And we were like, now what do we do? And so we added a few more people and we connected with other we connected with some foundations, one in particular out of Chattanooga called the McClellan Foundation. Sure. They were amazingly helpful. We were a bunch of young kids that didn't know anything. And they said, come on in. We'll show you. Here's all of our information, yeah. all of our strategy about world funding of missions. And it was so helpful. And so we learned how to do it. But the Grove Group is the group figures out how to deploy the money that God is bringing into our company. And so that is about 50% of our income each year. Wow. We now have five other companies that are also pooling money into the Grove Fund, a group we call the Kingdom Companies Group, all that are owned by charity and have a similar purpose. And so members of each of those six companies are now part of the Grove process. It went from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions to tens of millions. And, you know, this year I think we'll have 35 or 40 million to send out. Wow. It's amazing. I mean, and again, people get impressed with that. We've never sent out a nickel that God didn't provide to us. It's not like we're just trying to be a good conduit and God has done an amazing thing in growing our business. And, but this group of people are all employees or spouses of employees. Interesting. They have real authority. It's not, they're all doing it as volunteers. There's not. We don't have paid staff doing this. Like most foundations would have a yeah. significant paid staff. We're doing it with now about 60 volunteers that uh, are formed into six teams. And so I'm on the team for India. We wow. meet every month and we travel to India and we research different ministries in India. We come up with a portfolio of 20 or so ministries that we get proposals from and we take it to the board of to say, here's our proposed strategy for India. Here's what we think we should fund. And then the board will review that and maybe modify it a little bit. And that's how that money gets deployed. That's how the decisions get made. So we have another group that focuses on West Africa, a group that focuses on Southeast Asia, and a group that focuses on the Middle East, North Africa. And as you hear those four geographies, you can kind of see the common thread, which is hard places, places without the Christian infrastructure, fully in place that we've decided that God has us focusing on that. And then we have two other groups. One does uh, Bible translation globally, and one does leadership development globally. So those are the six groups that put forth portfolios each year. And, and so next week we have a meeting where we're going to be reviewing one of those, one of those groups portfolio. And then, so I'm on the board as well. So my India team presented in November, but I'll be, sitting mm-hmm. on the other side of the table this time and as a board member um, making the decisions. I can't make any decisions about where the money goes personally. My wife can't make any decisions. My wife is very involved in this. The board decides. And it's been like that really since 1986. Is it u- unanimous? How do you all do it? Yep. Okay. It has to be unanimous. I have the distinction of having the most proposals turned down. <laughs> 
<laughs> which which can be frustrating, but I but but it's as it should be, you know. Uh, and I think uh, I I think it's so healthy that people say, "Hey, that doesn't really fit who we are." Right. And this team thing has really helped because that that normally happens in the team now. But it is definitely not a rubber stamp organization, and we have truly put the responsibility into a group, and that has been highly beneficial, life changing for many of the people in these groups. Oh yeah. I mean, some of them didn't have a passport and now they're going to Yemen, you know, it. or they're going to wow. Iran or they're going to. Wow. That's discipleship. I mean, you're, you're, you're making disciples. It's life changing for yeah. people. And, yeah. and it also motivates them. I mean, we high five when we get a big job and we're like, think what this will do for the kingdom. Wow. And, or when our numbers come in, they're good. It's like, wow, look what this will, you know, this is going to give us additional resources. It's almost gotten to the place that God has put so much in our plate that it's like, Oh no. What now? now yeah. Now, now we're going to have to, last year we did 35 million. We're going to have to figure out a way to expand that to 45 million. How, let, do, we, how do we do it? And uh, let me this ask is a wonderful. A question about how do you, and I, I attribute Ramsey, you know, Cindy and I were very, I don't say this proudly, but we're, we're humbled to follow God's ways and God blessed. But Dave taught me a principle that I had totally overlooked. He said, Michael, when you give, you need to think about that more seriously than an investment because the people to whom you give that money may or may not use it well. And that was like, you know, okay, obvious brick on the side of my head. You probably have a very robust process of how you determine because India in particular is a very complex place to give money because there's a lot of charlatans over there. So you guys have some kind of process in place, I'm sure. We do a lot of process and we do a lot of studying too. I mean, the book, uh, When Helping Hurts was yeah. instrumental for us. Yeah. And we're basically, you can do, it's not a matter of just wasting money. You can do more harm than good yes. to yourself and to your recipient. You know, I think the welfare system in our country has mm. been pretty devastating on a lot of communities. I think Christian welfare is just as bad. Yeah. And and can create just as many dependencies and problems. And so we got to be careful. Toxic Charity was another one of the books that Mm -hmm. we read and we've taken a lot of benefit from. Giving away money can be dangerous. And we, we do see it as an investment. We ask a lot of hard questions. We're, we're not, we don't want to see the video. We want to understand the (laughs) leaders. I mean, we're, we're focused on three primary things when we investigate a group and we do the due diligence, we do it almost like we would do an acquisition in our company. Same basic process of what about the leadership? Do we have godly leader here? Do they have a coherent strategy and do they have a decent track record? Mm. If those things are in place, then we'll start to invest a little bit. And if that goes well, we'll measure and then we'll invest some more. So we don't want them to say, thank you. We want them to provide a return for us on our investment, which is not financial. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, we we approach it as business people. We want to be as strategic in our giving as we are in our making of the money. What Ramsey was saying was, I'd be saying amen. It was helpful. Yeah, it was helpful. Um, talk a little bit about NCF. I've known David Wills for many, many years and other folks that have been involved with NCF. And we've got listeners that have never heard of the National Christian Foundation. Well, let me give you a little of the story there. Our company grew a lot from 05 to 08. We went from a $50 million company to a $250 million company in four years. And the value of the company, we were making tons of money and the value went way up. And as far as we were concerned, God owned the company. Legally, my brother and I each owned half and provisions that we had for 
buy sell agreements and stuff were completely not going to work. Hmm. And so we started going through the process of state planning kind of stuff and, and how to deal with all the taxes. It's gotten a little better now, but it was pretty rough back in the 2005, 2006. And we came to the conclusion that we wanted to give away the company and we wanted to transfer the stock of the company into a charitable trust. And we went to our advisors and we said, you know, we don't want, this is all God's money anyway. We want to transfer it into a trust. And they said, you know, you can't do that. You're in your forties. <laughs> this thing's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Can't do that. I didn't know of NCF much at all, but somebody had given me Terry Parker's phone number and I called Terry. He's one of the founders of NCF. And so Terry, here's what I want to do. 30 minutes, he told me how we could do it. He said, you can't give away hundred percent, but you can give away 99. I said, that'll solve the problem. Thank you. Interesting. So we, in 2007 and 2008, we took 99% of the company and assigned all of the voting rights to the, to the 1%, we, which we held on to. We put the 99% into this trust it's irrevocably. And, and NCF was the, is the owner manager of that trust. And then a few years later, we took that last 1% that had all the voting rights and put it into what we call a voting trust that has a board of trustees that manages it. So if, if I get hit by a truck, there's a succession planning yep. provision and an anti-mission drift element to that. For the first time in a long time, I can be fired now. I have a board of trustees that could fire me at any time. But, they probably uh, will, Alan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never know. So NCF was so helpful in figuring out the mechanics of that. We went through, and it was a pretty big deal, and we went through an IRS audit, and they hammered us in that. And we had to hire an attorney uh. that NCF helped us find. And, and after the long process, we came out with a totally clean audit, reinforced that this is a legal thing to do. It's a reasonable thing to do. Um, the IRS thought it was a sham because mm. they said, people don't do this. Right. And we said, you know, we've been doing, we've been giving away 50% of our income for 20 years. And so it, it's not inconsistent with what we do. A lot of other people now have gone down that same path and we were thankful that we were able to go through the process with the IRS to maybe help that path become a little bit easier. But we have seen, we've now been owned by a charity for 15 years or so. We have seen zero disadvantages and mm. tremendous advantages. Our tax bill is substantially lower because of that. So we've saved millions of dollars each year in taxes. And there's really the only downside, we can't sell the company and put the money in our pocket. We can actually sell the company and reinvest it into other companies if we wanted mm. to, but we can't, you know, we can provide incentive plans for our people and, and for ourselves if we wanted to. So there's no real negative to it. And I think it's one of those opportunities that a lot of people have never thought of and they would be almost repulsed by. But if it's true that God owns it all and this mechanism of holding stock has some tremendous advantages and virtually no disadvantages, I, I, I think it's something people ought to look into. Yeah, I'm thinking of friends I know that have employees, a lot of employees. What happens to your employees and their families if you, quote, give the company away? That's why I'd almost, we'd quit using the term give the company away because okay. we, in, a, in essence, we didn't give away the responsibility of the company. We still see ourselves as the stewards. I'm still the CEO of the company. I work as hard as I ever did. We have more employees now, a lot more than when we gave the company away. The company's twice as big now as it was then. It's had zero impact on our employees. We have phantom stock plans for our, for our key employees. 
they can't own actual stock, but we didn't want them to anyway. And so they get the benefit of a piece of the action when the company does well. You can do almost anything operationally that you want to do and, and, and financially that you want to do. Almost no downside and tremendous upsides. We've been talking with Alan Barnhart. All the information about the Grove Group Kingdom Companies will be in the show notes. And uh, we'll also put some information about National Christian Foundation. And we're going to try and find some information on the Cumberland Trust. Boy, what a delight. I could talk to you all afternoon. Oh, it's been great. God bless you for your uh, generosity and greetings to Catherine and the good work you're doing for the kingdom. And yeah, we can't take it with us, can we? No. Michael, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a treat to be with you. It's a privilege. God bless. Blessings. Thank you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.